0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello
1: and welcome uh, to New Books in Economic and Business History, um, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Um, I'm Ghassan Moazin, an assistant professor at the University of Hong Kong uh, and one of the hosts of the channel. Uh, Today, I'm very happy to uh, welcome to the podcast uh, Professor uh, Michael Schiltz, who is an associate professor at Hokkaido University. And we'll be talking uh, about his new book, um, Accounting for the Fall of Silver, Hedging Currency Risk in Long-Distance Trade with Asia, 1870 to 1913, which recently came out with Oxford University Press. And it's a fascinating study of the financing of global trade in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, So, Michael, welcome uh, to the New Books Network. Good evening. No, thanks for taking the time. Uh, so, as usual, I was wondering whether we could uh, start uh, with you telling us a bit about how you actually came to write the book uh, and how you came to write about and work on, on this particular uh, topic.
2: So, um, the book uh, was is a follow-up of my first book um, about um, Japanese financial advisors to the colonies and to regions under Japanese influence. Um, so it's not just Taiwan, but it's obviously also, uh, and Korea, but it's obviously also China uh, in, uh, within World War I, and afterwards Manchuria, the puppet state, right? Um, and, and when doing this research, um, I noticed this outsized role of the Yokohama Specie Bank, um, which although being the third biggest exchange bank at the time, um, nevertheless was um, uh, comp- almost completely unstudied. Um and so naturally this you know caught my attention and that's why I decided to focus on it.
1: Yeah, really, um, really interesting. I think um when uh, I, I think I mean knowing uh, knowing your first book, I think it you know one can clearly see the kind of the connection uh, between the two, and I, I suppose in this book more trying to understand the um yeah how exactly the technicalities of actually finance uh, within trade finance actually work um at the time. Um, I was wondering particularly um for the benefit of listeners that might not be, you know, that familiar with um, how exchange banking, or actually what exchange banking actually is, and, and, and why it was important in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, I wondered whether you could talk a bit um, a bit about that.
2: That's a, that's a great question indeed. Um, so exchange banks themselves are, um, to put it simply, a remnant of the early British Empire. Uh, when uh, Britain was expanding uh, in Asia, um, and of course, it encountered a lot of you know, problems of trust, um, uh, which are very typical of, of uh, long distance trade, right? Like when you are an exporter, whether you are in England or in India, let's say, um, of course, you want to get paid. And there is no there is no reason why people would pay you, um, given that you're not, you know, there is no closeness whatsoever. There is also a large. So it's mostly regional and temporal. There is a lot or large differences there. Um, but also for an importer, um, you know, you're, of course, will even if you'll be willing to pay for the goods that you ordered, you still want, you know. Um, to make sure that the goods that you ordered will be of a certain quality and something like that. And so the British empire needed, uh, um, let's say uh, technologies of trust. They needed um, something or somebody who'd be able to solve these trust problems. And these problems were in the end handed or given to the so-called exchange banks, which by means of their uh, networks of um, correspondence or by branches and agencies, all over the world, uh, were able to give these or provide these services. So this is a trade insurance um, in the broadest sense possible. Um, they will make sure that the products that have been contracted are delivered as promised. Um, hopefully, at least, um, they will make sure that the payments are affected and so on. And by that means, also, you know, sir, they they solve a lot of liquidity problems, right? Like. Um, they they do away with many of the transaction costs that would um, arise in case their role or their existence would not be there.
1: It, it, it is really interesting that, you know, this whole, um, well, the activities of exchange banking, of exchange banks and, you know, bills of exchange that uh, were obviously kind of the um, financial tool that that all, yeah, the means that they were used to... Uh, um, well, to do a lot of that uh, financing of trade is really a topic that is not very widely understood or known, even though it's so key to understanding global trade. I mean, I,
2: I think so. I, yes.
1: um, yeah, whenever I tell my students about, and I show them a bill of exchange from the late 19th century, they have no clue what, um, what that actually is, even though yeah, it is so, so, uh, so central to uh, you know, understanding how the you know, global economy at the time um, actually worked. Um, It's it's
2: a very good point. Um, I I think that um, if you would, and the same happens with me, if you speak with uh, your students, then most of them uh, would probably argue or agree with when when stating that the British pound was the most um, common and the most liquid currency at the time. But they actually forget that it was not so much the British pound, but the bill on London that made all this kind of stuff possible, right? This was the oil in the international machinery of world trade that make things go you know that 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 made business as usual
1: yeah exactly yeah um i mean elaborating uh elaborating on that um a bit more um you've already talked about well we kind of have already touched upon sort of the international monetary system and so on but i wonder whether i mean of course your book um it particularly focuses on the role of silver and well the fluctuating price of silver and the problems that that actually created for these exchange banks so Could you talk a bit about what is the role of silver in the international monetary system at the time, and why why is the silver price fluctuating, and what you know what what is the problem of that, or what was the problem that that basically causes?
2: Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um, this is indeed very important because we have to distinguish between two periods here. Um, first, of course, is the period before eighteen seventy-one, um, and this has been for a long time quite a bit of a puzzle. Uh, so. Um, at the time, the world was on different monetary standards. Um, there was Great Britain being on the gold standard. Um, there were countries like Germany on the silver standard, and there were countries like France which were bimetallic, right? So they had both. They had like a, a legally stipulated ratio between uh, gold and silver. Okay. Um, now, what is what was not clear for a long time is why the gold silver par was so remarkably stable at the time, and this was actually uh, looked at and, and uh, explained by, uh, by the economist Marc Flomro, who had a hint of um, uh, Milton Friedman um, tried to see whether it was maybe France or the bimetallic countries, but especially France, that stabilized the price of silver vis-a-vis gold. Okay, um, and he discovered that there was indeed a relationship, uh, and the relationship is mostly in the times of the uh, in times of the uh, the bullion price of both gold and silver. Um, that in the metallic countries, you know, because they could arbitrage between, uh, I mean, they they between the the the, the cheapest metal at the time, uh, they uh, they took care they took they took care of the fact that you know um, the silver gold price returned to some kind of a, stable, a more or less stable ratio. It was only fluctuating, let's say, in a band or something like that. Uh, and that made it remarkably stable. But this changes um, as soon as um, Germany defeats France uh, in the, uh, Perso, uh, uh, the Franco-Prussian War of 1871, uh, when Germany decides to use the indemnity to go on gold um, for whatever reason. Right, like there is a lot of speculation about that. They may already have seen an increased um, uh, uh, level of trade with Great Britain, or they may have opted to um, increase that um, that that trade with Great Britain. But in any case, so when they when they go on silver, um, this sets off a process with which French policymakers are not very happy, and they will soon um, limit and later completely cancel or make it impossible. Um, that silver uh, can be monetized, uh, and when they do that, this band collapses. This stable band of gold silver prices collapses, um, and this, of course, poses, poses enormous problems for um, a lot of actors involved, um, because there is no, um, you know, there's no 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 center or no uh, arbitrageur of last resort anymore. Um, those actors will have to, you know solve this pro- these problems themselves. And it turned out to be remarkably difficult. So as you also know, um, quite a few of the most famous institutions at the time, and I'm talking about the Oriental Bank, of course, um, they simply went down. You know, They, they couldn't handle uh, uh, you know, this, this, the gyrations of, of the gold-silver ratio. Um, and it took um, more or less a decennium for a bank, let's say like uh, HSBC, because they were in the forefront of this, um, to come up with a way of hedging um, silver risk um, and and uh, building a completely new way new way of financing trade between Asia and the West.
1: Yeah, thank you. And and I'm going to come in a second to. Uh... Well, what these banks actually did to, to um, as you argue in your book, to to um, to hedge against um, the fluctuations in the silver price. But um, before that, I wanted to um, well, I wanted to highlight one thing or, or ask you about one thing because I think that's particularly well, it's one of the many facets that are really interesting about about your book is that um, you of course work with the archives of the uh, Yokohama Specie Bank. Um, You've touched a bit already about the uh, on the Yokohama species Bank, but maybe you could talk a bit well about the bank and also particularly about the archives. How you came to,
2: well, actually, how to how you came to use them and how you used them uh, in the book. Oh, the, the 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 second part of the question is actually the easiest part. Um, because they had they coincide with a very simple um, professional move of myself when I um, relocated from Belgium to the uh, University of Tokyo um, I happened to find these archives they were basically located almost 50 meters from my office there um, in the uh, rare records material r- r- rare records reading room or something I believe it's called in English um, and they were there um, they had been um, inherited uh, from the uh, Tokyo, Ginkgo, the Tokyo Bank, which was in itself uh, the follow-up of the Yokohama PC Bank. So this uh, this demands a little bit of an explanation, I think. The Yokohama PC Bank, because it was such an important element in Japanese imperialism, was um, basically abolished by the occupation authorities after World War II. So the bank had to, uh, to clean itself up. It was reborn as the Bank of Tokyo, and it uh, was like that for a long time until, of course, Japan in the 1990s, this is not the 1890s, but the 1990s, um, uh, discovered or or had this experience with the the famous bubble. And when the bubble burst, this led to um, a lot of bank amalgamation. Um, And when, uh, this is also a process I wasn't um, aware of, but when uh, a smaller bank is being absorbed by a larger bank, this mostly results in the archives being um, destroyed. Um, Now, when this happened, um, that word of word reached um, a few researchers at the University of Tokyo. And because of the role of this Yokohama Specie Bank in, in Japanese economic development, they decided um, that the University of Tokyo should become the host of these archives. They were in a complete disarray because of, well, you're living in Asia as well, because of humidity and so on in Asia. Um, lots of these archives were um, had been rotting uh, or were uh, destroyed, um, uh, again, I mean, they were they were not actively being destroyed, but they were destroyed by by you know the elements. Uh, uh, and and um, when the university received them, they had to be completely reordered. And only late, the, I mean, I'm talking about the early 21st century, did researchers start a, a project to um, microfilm these. And I was just happy to find them at a time that. Um, um, I had some money from a European grant, which I could use for my helping in microfilming. So I was given access to the archives and and basically that's it. So I, I used the um, so-called flow of funds data that were complete for the period between 1870 um, and 1870. Um, 1908 i think but i only used the ones from the 1900s because that's when the the bank reformed itself um and when um uh the whole bank network was was reordered um and i used these archives and it you know uh, was fortunately able to make sense of it
1: yeah exactly i think that's um i, I mean I, th- I think i should just stress how how um you know how rare it is actually to have such archives of well i think of a business in general but but Certainly, of exchange banks, it's not um, that common. Um, as you say, I think there are many things in. Well, many of these banks are not around anymore, of course, and that means that often their archives are also not around anymore. And so, um, yeah, it's very fortunate that that, that uh, these uh, these archives are still are still there and can be used by historians. Mm. Can um, I ask one? Uh, can I
2: just add one little thing there? Um, sure. So to make to, to make your point even more uh, more prescient. Um, the archives of the Oriental Bank itself were destroyed at the time of its bankruptcy. Um, um, this had this had the same thing happened with um, uh, f- uh, French banks, uh, with the Comptoir des Comptes, for instance. They also were destroyed. Um, unfortunately for us, the HSBC of course. Well, the HSBC not unfortunately, the HSBC of course survives. But unfortunately for us, a part of its archives was destroyed during the Japanese occupation of Shanghai. And you see that there are actually only very, very few exchange banks for which we have um, uh, a level of detail that could be used to reconstruct the financial technologies um, that they used um, when doing when when doing their businesses.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and. Um- the sort of the first, the first part of my question have been uh, so. Could you could you talk a bit um, also about the Yokohama SBC Bank? Um, I think it's it, it is a bank that is well known to people that study Asia, but I think beyond that, um, maybe not necessarily so. And uh, so yeah, um, I was wondering whether you could uh, again also I think HSBC people know more about because also because it's still around, but Yokohama SBC Bank. It might be good uh, for the listeners to 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 know a bit more about the, you know what that bank actually yeah, yeah correct did, um, and
2: uh, you're, and you're right um, it's it's mostly known among um, Asian researchers of Asia um, personally when I first sent my the book proposal to a different publisher uh, and I'm not afraid to say that it was it was Cambridge University um, they their first reaction was like oh but you're only gonna talk about the Yokohama PC Bank um, which which gives you an idea about how. A gnome this bank was, although it was number three in the world when it came to, um, uh, f- you know, uh, ensuring international trade, right? So the bank was actually um, uh, created in the eighteen late 1870s in Japan um, because uh, Japan had gone through a period of um, a lot of internal turmoil, um, basically what we nowadays would call, um, you know, uh, it was uh, Nisen, uh, so it was, uh, it was a, uh, now of course I, I forget the, the English word, uh, it was a uh, um, uh, civil war within Japan, so to speak. Um, and the government, in order to put down these, these, uh, uh, the civil war, they had to resort to basically printing themselves the way out of their problem, which of course resulted in inconvertible uh, paper money. And the Yokohama's PC Bank was mandated with solving that problem. Um, first of all, they made a big mistake. They thought the solution was by, uh, you know, basically pushing more silver out there, whereas the the real the good reaction would have been to contract the the uh, the money supply or the the paper supply. But as soon as Matsukata Masayoshi, um, who was uh, you know Japan's finance minister for a long time, took over, he was the one that, who decided that this bank was. Uh, going to give the yen more sway internationally um by playing uh, you know a very active role in the financing of international trade mostly intra asian trade at the time um uh, of course there's a long history there right like we cannot completely talk about the yokohama Specie bank just today um but the the idea is of course that you know it was uh, it was very well run uh with a clear mercantilist agenda uh, the idea was to take away Um, trade insurance from mostly British um, and European uh, exchange bank, and it was rather successful in that. Um, And later, of course, it becomes also um, active in... in, uh, uh, slash nbn50 to get 50% off in its role as as a as a pillar of the japanese empire it, it you know it will for instance be um uh in charge of even money print and uh, printing money um in in, uh, in in china in mongolia in all those kind of regions but it was uh uh, a bank of in formidable importance for the Japanese Empire, and fortunately for me um, and for us, there was just a lot of things to be discovered there.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think, um, yeah, it's 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 always kind of surprising how uh, how relatively little um, is known about about the bank, given particularly its importance within asia during during uh, during that period
2: um but then again like i always look at you as well because you know you you also look at those kind of institutions i mean they may have been smaller but they were of incredible importance right for the development of china as well um and and again i don't read chinese so so i can't read that but like there was a lot of there was a great role for you too to 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 dig up and discover how all these things worked at the time right
1: Yeah, and that's the fun. That's the and fun that's bit the about, about, yeah. about, about our work, I think. Um, before, yeah, delving a bit more into again hedging, I'm almost there. But I one th- one more thing I think methodologically, which is interesting, is that you um, you talk about um, uh, well, you talk about the um, sort of the way you look at some of these sources as uh, I think you say quote archaeological or. Forensic—that's true. Um, yeah. Sort of, uh, in terms of how you look at them, could you, could you, could you talk a bit more about how you kind of dealt with the sources and and how you uh, how you read them, basically, or how you used them in the, in the book?
2: Yeah, thanks. This is also a very useful question. Um, the problem, I think, was that because of a lack of data on the one hand, and also largely because of a lack of descriptive evidence um, not just me, but pretty much everybody was basically, you know, grappling in the dark about what was really going on here. Um, of course I got to hint from somebody who, you know, very well, Frank King, um, who talked about the even keel in his history of HSBC. Uh, and when reading that, I, des- I decided for myself, or I realized that I did not understand what he was quite writing when he said the even keel. Um, and it turned out when talking with colleagues and that that I was not the only one who didn't understand it. Pretty much nobody did, including probably Frank King, I think. And so my idea was like, how can I find a way to understand the problem consciousness of those bankers? And it was not easy, you know, like um, um, I, ha- I had to go through, um, well, archives in the first place. Um, I went through um, financial journalism at the time. Um, and, of course, encountered a lot of misunderstandings about, you know, HSBC itself as well, which you have seen the, documented in the book, right? So this does not really help when trying to understand it. Um, and I was just happy um, where, that there was something out there called network analysis, uh, which I did when looking at the flow of fund data of the Yokohama PC bank. And only then did I understand some of the remarks that I found in financial journalism or which I found in, let's say, accounting manuals at the time?
1: So then finally coming to the, um, uh, well, I think one of the major parts of the book is that, of course, sort of you, you're trying to kind of argue or explain um, how these banks, commerce BC Bank, but also HSBC, um, how they actually dealt with this problem of fluctuating uh, silver prices. So, I mean, could you elaborate on that a bit? Um what what these banks actually well came up with in terms of dealing uh, yeah, with yeah. this risk?
2: Well, I'll try to make it as easy as possible. Um, so the big problem I believe that both my that both myself and people like Franking and and Japanese researchers faced um, is that when looking at a certain problem, right, um, we try to find an answer, and it mostly means one answer, you know. Um, so so the idea was like, what does the trick here? And it took me a very, very long time to find out that it actually was not one thing, but it was two things that did the trick. Um, and you find this described in the book as well. Perhaps I should have even put it a little bit more clear. Um, but so on the one hand, you have financial technology. So there is, let's say, um, um, inno- financial innovation there, financial innovation with regards to certain types of bills. okay? um. I don't think it makes a lot of sense to talk about what exactly this happened because it's sometimes a bit complicated, so let's not do that. But um, uh, the, the financial innovation simply or basically existed out of the fact that um, the banks understood that it was possible to write up contracts in which the exchange operation was effectuated at the end of the accounting workflow, Um what this means, it's not very, not not that really important. It basically means that, um, in the case of export finance from Great Britain to China, uh, basically the whole exchange trouble was offloaded, so to speak, on the on on the Chinese importer. Uh, a very good example of how the British Empire made foreigners pay for the empire, so to speak. Uh, but the other part of the technology, or it's not really financial technology, but it's a man- managerial innovation, is the fact that those banks realized that because of the telegraph, which had been in place since the 1870s, you know, the telegraph could be used to telegraph each other prices on a daily basis. And they could it could be used to offset amounts of bills bought with bills sold on the other on the other end, um, if we would go into this very deeply, I mean, this what what exactly it means to hedge a certain operation. Um, it they, it basically meant um, information exchange between branches or banks in the West uh, and and banks in Asia, uh, and they would be in constant correspondence with each other, trying to do, you know of course they had foresight about. You know what what uh, seasonal flick- seasonal fluctuations meant and so on um, for certain products, but they would you know basically telegraph each other what was going on, and then they would decide together um, what was possible in terms of their business.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, and I think again in the book that is you know that you go into a lot of detail in 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 in, in terms of how this um, exactly works, and it's. Um yeah, it, it is really you know hard to overstate how important this whole, well, the whole way of how trade, well, trade finance in general, but how how trade finance was run was was for for understanding uh, the global economy. Um, I I think at the time. Probably a final aspect that I I want to touch um, upon is um, in the particular case of Japan mm-hmm. um, and the Yokohama SBC Bank. What the I mean, of course, Japan then later follows the, the the German Empire, or Germany, and, and also goes on the gold standard. Um, what that actually, um, what kind of, well, I maybe mean, first of all, of course, um, um, you know, you might want to talk a bit about, or you could, if you if you, if you if you don't mind, talk a bit about why Japan decided to go on the gold standard, um, but then also what kind of impact that
2: had on the Yokohama's Specie Bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so first of all, to answer your first question, um, this is a very interesting topic in financial history, and it's one of the, very few um, episodes, I believe, in Asian financial history that really made it into the West. Thanks to our um, friend Matsukata Masayoshi, whom I mentioned uh, earlier, um, he was responsible for writing several reports in English about why Japan decided to go on the gold standard and how that process worked. So this has resulted in uh, several papers, one of which is I wrote myself. Um, um, and again, it's not quite a decided thing. But I believe that Japan or Matsukata Masayoshi took Japan on the gold standard as some kind of an insurance policy. Uh, So it was not so much um, to get, let's say, on on an optimal deal when it came to foreign lending or when it came to uh, expanding its trade base. Um, It was more, let's say, um, a way against insuring against something that even was even worse, um, for instance, what nowadays we call sudden stops or something like that, like being cut off of capital flows from uh, from the international center. So that was my idea about why Japan adopted the gold standard. How this affected the the Yokohama uh, Specie Bank, of course, is and I'm happy that just uh, I mean you clearly read the book very well. Uh, thank you for that. Um, is obviously that was very upsetting for the bank. So suddenly you, you go from a silver standard country dealing mostly with Great Britain as a gold standard country to two gold standard countries dealing with each other. But obviously Japan, um, and I'm not arguing that, you know, um, uh, geography is destiny or something like that. But still, you know, it's it's a country within Asia. And it had a very important trade base within China, which never really went onto the gold standard. Well, actually never went to the gold standard um so the the, the bank would have, had to adopt its uh, strategies um what it mostly means is that it's going to go also because of the um it's it's large it's growing network of branches it is going it's going to cluster several branches by region um and it's kind of going to try and offset costs of trade insurance by looking at what is possible within these diff- the different regions um from a social network or a network analysis perspective, this proved to be not always easy to model, or, or like to, or or even to uh, to get into graphs when I was writing the the book. But it, it worked. So
1: yeah, no, thank you. And um, I mean, people can see that again. They see that uh, in in a lot of detail in the book. Um, I think. Um... Well Michael we've already taken up um quite a bit of your time but I think um as usual before before we close I I wanted to ask you um you know you've written the book um and uh, the book is done but uh, we are of course very interested to to know what what you're working on now whether um you know it's something related to the book or something completely different um so I wonder whether you could tell us a bit about that
2: Yeah well thanks um uh, I'm also going to look at you because you also finished your own book uh, very recently. So, you probably know that when you finish a book, it's always, it creates some kind of an emptiness, right? Like, um, uh, so, 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 what now kind of feeling. Um, and uh, on the one hand, I'm kind of lucky because I'm working with, um, uh, or at least I'm in, in touch with a, a few Japanese researchers who are themselves interested in looking at a few other. Um, uh, still remaining archives. I'm talking about the archives of the Chartered Bank, for instance. And I have received these. Um, I'm very grateful for that. And I'd like to work with these things as well. So that's one of my projects. Another one uh, is quite different. Um, I got interested in, in, uh, because of my interest in in, uh, actuarial science and and accounting, I also got interested in um, uh, the history of, let's say, statistics uh, in Asia. Uh, and especially the history of probability theory, um, which is uh, a kind of an amazing thing. Like this is something that seems to be on um, the exclusive terrain of uh, Europe, mostly European mathematicians um, from the Renaissance. Um, but and of course, of course, they entered Japan during the major revolution. And I maybe I may want to look have a look at that as well. Um, i was wondering maybe like whether you knew anything about probability theory in china for instance but i guess it's the same story i i think it's really much much of a european history there um that and and the consequences of which remain to be explored you know
1: well i think both of um yeah both both projects sound sound great so uh, uh i look forward to um yeah, to, to uh, hearing more about that in the, in the future, certainly. But uh, what remains for me to do then, Michael is to thank you again for, for taking the time and I encourage everyone to uh, um, again have a look at the book. Um, and uh, yeah, as I said, out from uh, Oxford University Press uh, so you can you can find it in the usual places. So um, yeah, thank you very much, Michael.
2: I right, thank you.